çıkarlarım. Welcome back. Today we are going to continue our series of living with certainty. That's what this is about. We're supposed to be fostering trust in Hashem. And the trust that we place in Hashem, the full reliance upon God, even in the stormiest of times or darkest of hours, enables us to maintain a sense of inner peace, tranquility, and equilibrium. Not every class is going to talk about tranquility <laughs> or the methodology through which we can attain this peace. There are a lot of questions that have to be answered. There are a lot of things that have to be better understood for us to be able to slowly but surely build this betochen structure. One of the fascinating aspects of this whole philosophy or Weltanschauung is this idea that Hashem loves us, cares about us, provides for us. And if God is omnipotent, and I believe He is, if God can provide for all of the life that teems in this planet, surely He can provide for you and I. But why doesn't He? I mean, if God can, why does He make it so difficult or so challenging to earn one's daily bread? This is the philosophical question that we're currently working with or working our way through. In the previous two episodes, we've spoken about how God tests us and how it's all about the choices we make. If we wouldn't have these challenges, if we wouldn't have these trials or travails, if we wouldn't be tested, what choice would we be able to make and then by virtue of what? could we be deemed righteous? Here, Rabbeinu Bechaya now offers a second dimension, 
a slightly different approach, another explanation as to why it is that it isn't easy to make a living. If you're following alongside in the New Kahat edition, you can turn to page 87. Today's class opens with the words, the Hasheni, and the second. The Marpel and Nefesh says, Hatam Hasheni, the second reason. Lama Hutzrach Ha'adam Latreach. Why indeed do people have to work so hard? I mean, why couldn't God make it a little easier? After all, if there wouldn't be a lack of supply, then it wouldn't be such a demand. Hashem could have given us such beneficence, such abundance, that we wouldn't have to think twice. Crops would be everywhere. It wouldn't have to take effort and strenuous toil to be able to farm or to produce that which can sustain us keeping body and soul together. There'd be so much of it. You wouldn't know what to do with it. I know what you're thinking. That's not realistic. Of course it isn't. Because God created reality. And there will come a time, very soon, when that will become our new reality. But that is referred to as the Messianic era. In the present or current circumstance, we need to toil and make tremendous effort. Why? Why is it that a person must toil so? To pursue his livelihood. This is the question that we've been dealing with today, now, the second answer. Were we to be, as we might imagine it, have our dreams come true, not have to work or toil, not have to expend effort or pursue a livelihood or sustenance, that we wouldn't have to seek out a means to make a living. We would proverbially kick, kick rebelliously. And we instead would pursue or run after a path of sinfulness. This is, it seems to be, a very dim view of humanity. If people wouldn't be tormented, they'd be horrible. So God tormented them. And because He tormented them, they don't behave horribly. So, can I ask a simple question, Rabbeinu Bachaya? If God created us, predisposed to horrible behavior, so therefore He had to torment us so we don't behave horribly, so why didn't God just not create us with such a horrible nature? So He wouldn't have to torment us. 
Like, what is Rabbeinu B'chai really saying? Does he have such a dim view of humanity? Is it in fact true that that if a person wouldn't have to expend such effort in order to make a living, that he would necessarily rebel? That he would kick back, so to speak, and follow a path of folly, a life of sinfulness? It does sound rather strange. Let's talk about for a moment the verbiage that Rabbeinu B'chayi uses because, as usual, this seems to be a mouthful here. And as we've learned time and again, Rabbeinu B'chayi does not employ hyperbole. Every word here is choreographed, precise, and has meaning. The Paslechem, he's been our, our protector in the in the playground from the bullies. You know, he's, we can always look, or almost always look to the Paslechem to help us appreciate the seeming redundancies on the pages of Shara Betachem. Well, Paslechem says this. The first word is Litroyach. Litroyach or Tircha means burden, if we wouldn't have to burden ourselves. He says this refers to Yugiyas Haguf. Quite literally, hard or backbreaking labor. That doesn't mean necessarily blue collar activity, although it could. You can toil or work really long, hard hours in a white collar industry as well. People toil, they work very hard, they're exhausted, entirely overwhelmed from the responsibilities they carry and they work that they have to engage in. So that's the first thing. There's always a tircha. Making a living is a burdensome activity. It's not fun. The next word he uses is lechazer. So lechazer doesn't refer to the idea of exertion. But lachazer really is about pursuing, lachazer, to, to run after something. The Paslechem says, this refers not necessarily to physical sprinting, but shaha'odam mahader v'choyker limtze is a siba. He's constantly looking for an angle. That's the nature of business. He or she is looking for a way to be able to make a living. It's called the pursuit of a living. And what do they ultimately seek? A siba, a reason, a cause, a strategy, an approach, a cogent, critical path forward. How am I doing this? So whether you're in a particular vocation a profession, or engaged in commerce. There's always a methodology, a way you're going to bring customers in, a way you're going to enable productivity so that you can have profitability. Whether you're a physician, restauranteur, or a person who engages in day trading, there's a method to the madness. So a person works really hard, 
is in pursuit of making a living, not sitting back and just waiting for opportunity to knock on his door. And finally, you're in pursuit, you're looking for that approach, for that strategy, that big idea. It's going to enable profitability. And then, of course, when you find that, you engage. You carry it out. It's a good idea. <laughs> I need to do something about it. And that, says the Pas Lechem, is the meaning of Lesabiv. To kind of create cause and effect. Put it into motion. And what if a person wouldn't have to pursue this? What if a person wouldn't have to sit and think and contemplate, analyze and evaluate? What if he would find the objective of livelihood easily? With virtually no toil, with virtually no effort, he wouldn't have to work hard or be thinking or carrying ideas out. No stress. It would be easy. In that case, says Paslechem, if a person could achieve the things he or she wants, without any kind of effort or pursuit, then this is a person who would be crass. He would kick the Malkai against his king, against the dominion of Hashem Rahman Litzlan. I'm still asking why. Why, why is that? So if we wouldn't have so much stress and wouldn't have this much pressure, we would rebel against God? Do you know how many times I've asked people to come to Shul, to involve themselves in the study of Torah, and received answers like, Rabbi, I wish I could. When you'll take care of paying my salary, and making sure my family has everything they need, I'll be there. Are you going to pay me to come and daven? Come on. I'd love to be involved in spiritual pursuit when I retire. When I have the ability to do as I please, not as I must. And yet, we seem to be hearing in these pages that it's the hard work that motivates Yiddishkeit engagement and achievement. How does that work? What exactly is the, the operational theory here? The Marpel and Nefesh, he says, people shouldn't have free time in their hands. He has free time. He's going to do all kinds of depraved things. If he'd have hakol muchen lefanov, if he had everything easily available, well, in that case, 
He would not direct his or her heart to the service of God, to the study of Torah. So that's why God made him busy. He burdened people because unburdening them wouldn't help anyway. And because, invariably, if they had p'nai, they had time, they do kol toyavas Hashem, all the things that God says are abominable. So first of all, i got to tell you <laughs> that many of the conversations I've had over the last, uh, let's say, year, year and a half with people, especially during the most difficult and darkest days of this, the COVID and the lockdowns. And I, I've been, like, you know, teaching on air for a long time now, online, to try to alleviate people's boredom, to try to engage people, to try to provide them with a medium to study Torah. And people were saying to me that they're going stir-crazy, that they're so bored. And I wish I had a dollar for every time somebody responded. I said, well, youtube.com forward slash Shabbat Mendel Kaplan. Why don't you watch my classes? I'm, I'm talking about uh, Torah and sharing ideas. And the response invariably is, well, I'm, I'm, it, your classes are too long. I'm too busy. And I'm like, hey, you just told me a moment ago you don't have anything to do. And you're climbing the walls because you're so bored. <laughs> One elderly person recently said to me, you know what, Rabbi? When the World Cup is over... I'll have some time. And I'm like, really? You just told me how, how you wish you could leave your condo and how you're so unhappy, cooped up. And I said, okay, so, but let's learn Torah until you're comfortable, kind of re-emerging. And the answer was, well, yeah, I got the World Cup. I said, oh, okay, I understand. I mean, I really don't. But the truth is that when you point the finger at somebody else, you're invariably pointing five at yourself, I, four at yourself. I do, I do the same thing. We all do the same thing. We all make excuses. The reality is we think if we had more leisure time, we'd be more involved in Torah and mitzvahs. The fact of the matter tells a different story. But why are we so certain that if a person wouldn't be occupied or burdened or stressed out, that he or she would engage in sinful behavior. The Toiv Halavonen offers us fascinating insight, which to me resonates with such relevancy for us in our particular time in history. And I'm not talking COVID. I'm talking about North American decadence. Listen to what he says. Firstly, in the Toiv Halavonan's view, this reason is not entirely disparate from what we've discussed earlier. He says, Zehasheni Moisif. This is not a, a, second, a second, but rather a secondary or an add-on, in addition to everything we've discussed earlier. In other words, that life should have value, that people should have challenges so they'll be tested and they can overcome these trials and these tribulations by doing the right thing, by choosing appropriately. And it's all about the choices we make. Moisif. So now he adds to say, if everything were to be available at no effort, easily in hand, then people would have time. Not time to study Torah do mitzvahs. Time to pursue a life of self-indulgence, 
and sinfulness. It's by his very nature. It's chumre. It's the reality of embodiment. You know, being a, a member of this terrestrial reality. So the nature is we're predispositioned to kick rebelliously against the goodness of God. Of course, everything is available without effort. And here, the Tevelavonon adds five extremely powerful words. Listen carefully. Hoya Choshev. If a person had whatever he or she wanted without working for it, then they would think. Shekach Mechuyevloi. You owe it to me. I've got it coming. In English, we call this an attitude of entitlement. Attitudes of entitlement are the single most destructive part of a person's psyche. Because if I'm entitled, if I've got it coming, if you owe it to me, then I do not have to adopt an attitude of gratitude or be appreciative of anything because you owe it to me. This is probably the single biggest problem that parents are facing today in a society where we have more luxury, more of just about anything material than we've ever had in history. The average middle class family lives a far more luxurious and enjoyable life than nobility of yesteryear. Imagine what people would give to have running toilets, running water, the kind of comfort that we have, even ordinary people in their homes. This is a huge issue. The kids are entitled. You owe it to me. Teval Avonen says, Rabbeinu Bechaya believed that entitlement is destructive. And if people would have everything, just by virtue of being, they would become entitled. And entitlement makes a person's very being rotten. So out of entitlement, one becomes sinful. When one is industrious and has to work for what you have, you appreciate it. You have an attitude that's filled with gratitude. And an attitude like that will make you industrious, appreciative, and take you towards a path of achievement, accomplishment, and spirituality. As Teva Levanen continues now, after having described entitlement, he says, Out of entitlement, out of plenty, out of luxury, a person would never come to realize that that which you have is a gift. Why don't people appreciate life? 
because they take it for granted. Don't take anything for granted. Can I share a, a beautiful thought? It's not even directly related. But I want to share it because I, I think it makes the point. We have a dispute in the Talmud. What's considered grounds for divorce? Bichamai, who are usually very stringent, say, grounds for divorce? Say something extraordinary, like licentiousness, like, like an extramarital affair. That's grounds for divorce. Otherwise, a marriage is sacred. Who, who could tamper with a marriage? Bithilel, who are usually extremely benevolent in their view, says, what do you mean? It could be something as uh, simple as burning the dinner, spoiling the soup. And you ask yourself, what? Does Judaism really believe that something so trivial is a cause for divorce? And Beit Hillel yet? They're the benevolent ones. How could you even say that? Does marriage have no value? Do we have no appreciation of its sanctity? But our rabbis tell us that's precisely the point. The Torah introduces us to divorce along with marriage because the possibility of divorce means you don't take your spouse for granted. When you take your spouse for granted because hey, they'd never leave anyway. This marriage is rock solid. We're stuck for life. Then why bother working on it? Anything which we don't take for granted is necessarily going to be valued. I never actually researched this, but I've been told that people who own their boats. You know, they go out in the lake here in the province of Ontario. Use their watercraft far more often than their counterparts in southern Florida. It's almost impossible to believe at the surface. I mean, <laughs> southern Florida, the sunshine state, the beautiful oceans. I mean, how many times can't you use your beautiful speedboat, your, your watercraft, when you're on the Atlantic. You get half a dozen hurricanes a year, a couple of rainy days. I mean, out of, out of 300 days, there's got to be at least 330 that are seaworthy. Yeah, I live in Ontario. Summer is really nice here. Last year it was on Tuesday. Okay, I'm joking. Summer doesn't last very long here. Like we have a long Canadian winter. Come November, nobody's on the water. And if you can get there before the end of May, that's a big achievement. June, July, August, maybe half of September. That's it. So how is it possible that people use their boats more here than in southern Florida? The answer, my friends, is simple. In southern Florida, they take it for granted. Good weather is an everyday occurrence. 
here in Ontario, when the sun is shining, it's like, hey, the sun is shining today. A guest appearance. Because we know it's going to fade quickly, we value the good weather. We appreciate it. We don't take it for granted. It doesn't make us better people. <laughs> I'm just saying matter-of-factly that when something's always available, it isn't appreciated nearly as much as something that comes on occasion and can't be taken for granted. That's the point here. If we didn't have to work to make a living, if we would have our needs met all the time, we would invariably develop an attitude of entitlement. And entitlement is a terrible place to be. And it will lead to sinfulness. Because maintaining your gratitude, living appreciatively, is a segue into developing a relationship with Hashem Yisbarach. Do you know <laughs> that we don't have a responsibility to make a bracha on our food before we eat it, only afterwards? I mean, rabbinically, we're supposed to make a bracha, a blessing, before we eat the food. But biblically, v'achalta, v'savota, you eat and you're sated. Then And what do the verses say afterwards? The verses speak about success and the delusion that yours is the secret of success. That you own that which you have, that it isn't a gift, but rather it's the result of your own acumen, your own diligence, your own focus, your own strategy. It's yours, not God's. That's a bad place to be. So Judaism comes along and says, you're feeling satiated, you're feeling good about yourself, quickly grab a Siddur, a prayer book, and bench, and remember who Hanotein L'chakoyach Lasis Choyel, God gives us the ability, the wherewithal to do valor. Everything's a gift. And living that way segues into a life of spirituality. And so whether we see this as a second or independent reason, a tam hasheni, as the Marple and Nefesh put it, or as the Tevel says, whether this is sheni hamoysef, it is only adding nuance, the point is that in order for life to be meaningful, in order for life to be lived well, we can't be in a position of entitlement, taking things for granted. And the only way that can happen is if we have to work to make a living. If only some people had the difficulty, only some people had challenge, trial and travail, they'd think they were cursed or something. They think God doesn't love me. God doesn't care about me. But this is something that's universal. Invariably, people worry about making a living in every time and in every place. It is a defining hallmark of human anthropology. Just about every society has been like this. And in societies where people have too much, where they become decadent, they will quickly become depraved. One seems necessarily to lead to the other. As the Paslechem puts it, 
Well, let's take a look further back in the words of Rabbeinu Bachaya. He says, you be a roidif achar averis. Why would you be a roidif achar averot? Why would you be a person who suddenly starts to pursue sinful behavior, violating the word of Hashem, abrogating your bond with God, and not behaving as Hashem expects you to? Then a person would easily not pay attention to what they owe Hashem in response for all of the goodness they have received. We, in return to the goodness we have received, have an obligation for reciprocity. Did you want God to make us all sickly? Did you want God to make us all suffer poor health? Not being able to draw a breath or have congenitive heart failure? No. As the Maggid of Mizrich famously said, A small crevice, a break, a, a tear in the body results in a gaping hole in the soul. We need our health to be able to serve Hashem. It's a mitzvah to take care of your health. Hashem doesn't want to torment or torture us. Chas v'shalom. But He wants us to live in an attitude of gratitude. He wants us to appreciate. He doesn't want us to be entitled. He wants us to realize that He's given us so much. Basic menschlichkeit. Just common, common decency says we need to reciprocate. We're not here by accident. There's a creator that placed us here. Why? Why do I have so much? And what can I do to proverbially repay God? Many years ago, when I was still a yeshiva student in New York, I met a man who was thirsting for spirituality. A person who wanted desperately to somehow, in his words, repay God for his kindness. He had an extraordinary story. His parents were Holocaust survivors who didn't have the courage and gumption to pick up and emigrate to move elsewhere and ended up going back to their hometown in Poland where they came from. If my memory doesn't fail me, they married after the war. And they had a child, and they didn't talk about the Jewishness. I'm pretty sure they had numbers. They covered the numbers. They never told the son he was Jewish. When he was nine years old, he came home from school, beaten, bruised, bloodied. His mother was horrified. She said, what happened? And he said, I don't know. They called me a Jidi, and they beat me up in the in the playground today. It's a pejorative for a Jew. It's like kike. And his parents sat down that night and they said, so they know. Our child isn't safe. At the age of nine years old, he and his parents left communist Poland and they emigrated to the Holy Land of Eretz Yisrael. There at the age of nine, he received a Brit Milah, a Jewish name, very, very basic, rudimentary knowledge of what Judaism was, but really not much. 
At 18, he was in the IDF. At 20, he was out and married, or 21. And at 22, he was divorced. He said to me, I came to the United States with a dollar in my pocket, with nothing. And he said, I've been thinking. I have a beautiful wife. I have two beautiful children. I have a successful business. I've been thinking. I need to reciprocate. And he told me that he had actually began to keep kosher. And I had the good fortune of meeting him and then things progressed. Putting on tefillin every day, saying the Shema every day. The point the point is that when a person doesn't take things for granted, they're open to spirituality. They're open to a relationship with Hashem. If we never had to work, if we never had to stress, if we never had to deal with challenge to have our basic needs met, we'd probably end up decadent and depraved. So Hashem in His kindness didn't take away our health. He didn't torture or torment us. Although there have been some very difficult and painful times for us Jewish people over the course of our long storied and blood-filled exile. But the one thing that's a common for everybody in every place and in every time, even in the best of times, is the challenge. You've got to make a living. Okay, there are some people who are trust fund babies. They usually don't do very well. Most people invariably have to struggle, have to toil to make a living. Hashem made it this way so that you and I would live like a mensch and seek to reciprocate to Hashem and ask ourselves questions like, so I have, I've been given. What do I do with it? How do I respond? Rabbeinu Bechaya says that this hashgacha, this supervision, this attention paid to mashu boy, al toivas love for the largest of Hashem, for Hashem's beneficence, His generosity towards us. Where do we see all this? If this idea is true, it would have to be Somewhere in the prophecies, somewhere in the criticism that the prophets would have given us, we would have heard of precisely this idea. Funny you should say that. It's right there in the fifth chapter of Isaiah. And Rabbeinu Bechaya hones into the twelfth verse, which reads, And so there are harp, lyre, drum, and flute. It sounds pretty musical. Ve'yayin. Huh, look at that. Wine too. Mishtehem. They have all these musical instruments. They've got parties. Ve'espoyal Hashem lo yabitu. However, they don't contemplate the deeds of Hashem. Umaisa yodov. And his handiwork lo Why didn't they see it? Because they were decadent. Because for them life was a party. 
There were trust fund babies, an entitled generation who didn't have to work. So they didn't think twice. They paid no attention, no heed to the gift of life and showed no appreciation for it. In the Steinsaltz edition of the Tanakh, which he beautifully renders into English, he calls this fifth chapter, his title is The Parable of the Vineyard, the end of a society that had lost its values. The prophecy begins with a parable and ends with a punishment. Unlike in the days of Yirmiyo Hanavi, the Yerushalayim in the days of Isaiah of Yeshayahu was in its splendor, especially under the rule of Uziah and the prophecies of destruction. The kind we encounter here in the fifth chapter of Isaiah will like a distant future. People lived in a hedonistic, acquisitive society. They paid little attention to the Navi, to the prophet, and the values he represented. So Yeshayo Hanavi remonstrates, pleads, tries to get through to the people. They can't be bothered. Let's go to verse 12. So the prophet, already in verse 11, begins to intensely criticize the people. He says in Pasuket Aleph, he says, Woe those who arise early in the morning, not because they got to make a living or the pursuit of Torah. No, but rather to pursue intoxicating beverages. They wake up from the sleep to start drinking early. In other words, seeking partying, fun. And then, in verse 12, he says, the harp, the lyre, drum, and the flute, the wine are their banquets. They have drinking parties with musical accompaniment. They do not regard the work of Hashem, nor do they see the work of His hands. They care for nothing apart from their revelries, which are at the center of their lives. The Mepharshim, the traditional commentaries, on this Pasuk, in the Nevoah of Yirmiyo, say, and I'll read to you Radak, Rabbeinu David Kimchi says, Hinei heim pnuyim imelocha. They don't have to work. They're not industrious. Why? Kim Ashidim, it's rich kids. They don't worry about making a living. Call Iskam. So what do they spend their time doing? I mean, the human condition is such we want to, you know, do something. They don't want to just watch the paint dry. Call Iskam, but Mishte, partying and listening to music, enjoying themselves. 
They didn't spend every free moment engaged in Torah study. If only it were so. If only it were so that if we would have as much time as we needed, we'd spend the time studying Torah, but invariably it does not happen that way. When we have all the time in the world, somehow we find no time for that which is good. I have a little memory I want to share. I'm a, I'm a boy. We were living in Philadelphia at the time. Maybe I'm 10 or 11. It's in the early 80s. And around that time in the early 80s, there was an influx of, of Jewish people that had been allowed to leave the Soviet Union. And a good number of them came to northeast Philadelphia where we were living. So I would go with my father to show in the morning at the Lubavitcher Center. And there was, there was a, I don't know, a handful of elderly Russian gentlemen who would come to Davin. They'd come in the morning to Davin. And they would rush out. There was a, a, a bus <laughs> that would leave every morning, just a block away from the shoal. It would take, you would go to Atlantic City. It's a free bus to take you to Atlantic City. And they give you $10 worth of chips. And, um, and these people figured out that they could actually go to Atlantic City and look at the ocean and cash in the chips at the end of the day. But of course, you know, human nature is such that when you give you $10, you start gambling, and it's very hard to have restraint. I mean, there's, it's a, there's a business model here. Anyway, and I, and I used to watch this. I'm just a kid, you know. I'm like observing these people who are there. I don't know what they do for a living. They, they seem like past retirement age, but they're always rushing out. And, and I remember saying something to my father, like, said, like, I said, it must be like, great, they, have, they don't really have to be anywhere. I mean, like, what if, you, if you didn't get to Atlantic City, you didn't. They, they could like, they could like, you know, come to more in the show in the morning and daven, and they don't have any stress and any pressure. And my father said something to me that I didn't fully understand, but it like, somehow it like lodged itself in my head, and I've revisited this time and again, and the veracity of the words really just comes back to me continuously. He said to me that the people who come to Shoal when they're busy will come when they're retired and have lots of time. I'm remembering now. I asked him, why don't more of them come to Shoal? I said, they don't do anything. Why is there only three or four or five people coming? And then there's 40 of them getting onto a bus. Why don't more of them come to Shoal? After all, they, they have all the time in the world. And my father said to me that those who come to shul when they have small children and business obligations, you know, the busyness of life, when they get older, they continue to come to shul. And most often, those who didn't come when they were busy don't find time when they aren't. And I see this with my own eyes. people who are retirees, people who aren't busy, for the most part. They aren't studying Torah much more so than those who struggle to make a living and raise children, you know, at the busy part of their life. Because my dear friends, human nature is such that when we are industrious, we value our time, and really it boils down to priorities. Nobody has time for anything except things that are important. You'll come to a person who's so busy, but 
a tragedy. His best friend is burying his parent. He's not going to find time to go to the funeral. He'll cancel whatever it is. So he won't make money that day. Priorities. It's a priority. We all have priorities. There is no such thing as a person who cannot be involved in spiritual pursuit or work on developing a relationship with the Rebbeinu Shalalim, the creator of heaven and earth. There is no such person. There are many people for whom it is not a priority. When I say no such person, I mean no such person who is involved in material matters. There could be a person whose health is failing him. That's another story. You never heard Rabbeinu Bahaya say God made people unhealthy so that they should come home to him. You never heard Rabbeinu Bahaya say or suggest that God would make people suffer so that they should come home to him. He said he made you busy. He made your life challenging. He gave you lots of obligations to meet and things to do because that's the way you'll find time to show appreciation and to value the gifts of life. It's a stunning idea. It's Gewaldic. And Yeshayahu Anavi was railing about this more than two and a half millennia ago. Because you know what? Nothing has changed. Now, of course, there are many people who are busy making a living, and that's all they're busy with. That's a choice you make. <laughs> As the Toyib Halavanan said, this is only a continuation of what we discussed earlier. Hasheni Moisif. The second reason here isn't disparate, but rather it's kindred. If everything were to be prepared, ready, easily available and accessible, you wouldn't value it. And because it isn't, we do value or should value the things we have and as such make the right decisions, have the right priorities, and live life as Hashem wants us to. It's that simple. It really is. And it's in our hands. So the Navi railed about this already way back when. What's quite fascinating is that Rabbeinu Bahaya now moves from the book of Isaiah. He moves back to the book of Deuteronomy. From Yeshayo Hanavi, he moves to Moshe Rabbeinu. And I think the obvious question we have to ask ourselves is, wouldn't it make more sense to first quote a verse from Deuteronomy and only afterwards quote the verse, the Pasuk, in Yeshayo Hanavi? The Pasuk, the verse is found in the 32nd chapter of Deuteronomy, that's known as Parshat Hazinu. It's the 15th verse in the Parsha. Moshe Rabbeinu says that the future doesn't look good. Doesn't look good, he says. Hashem brings the people into Eretz Yisrael. They ate the spoils of their enemies. 
He gave them cities, wealth, endless plenty. They inherit the land and the spoils of the army and their camps. In verse 15 he says, Moshe Rabbeinu looks into the future. He says, instead of appreciating Hashem's bounty, instead of using it as a vehicle, as a method to enhance one's relationship with Hashem, Yeshurun, the formerly upright nation of Israel, unfortunately didn't maintain the integrity of that title. No longer were they so, if you will, upright. Yishman Yeshurun. Yeshurun, from the term Yashar, upright. In essence, the Jewish people. They got fat from overindulgence. Vayivot. This is the term we've seen here. Rabbeinu B'chai uses this term. It means literally to kick or to kick rebelliously. And Moshe Rabbeinu says, Shomanto avisa kasisa. You became fat, corpulent, and covered. Vayitosh aleka oisol. And the nation forsook God, the God who made them. Vayinavel tzur yishuosei. They scorned the rock of their salvation. So I was thinking about it. Why, why is it that this is why is it that this is the second verse that Rabbeinu Bachaya introduces us to? And it seems to me that here Moshe Rabbeinu is talking about the matter of fact reality. Whereas Yeshayo Anavi was speaking to the people who were doing this themselves. Here Moshe Rabbeinu speaks about something that will happen. It doesn't say it will happen to everybody or it has to happen. This is what is going to happen to the people. In the words of Yeshayo, he's telling them, this is your problem. It would seem that the criticism of Yeshayo is far more direct and that the blame is laid squarely in the overindulgence. Whereas here it's merely a matter of fact. In the Kahas Chomesh and the Hasidic Insights, it talks about the three categories of getting fat and kicking, two types of kicking. It says you got fat, this refers to people when they first become prosperous and allow themselves to indulge in some of the many extraneous sensual pleasures that life offers us. And then, Vayitish, then they forsake God. Once they become fat, in other words, once the people subtly begin to change their habits. And this is a direct quote from a sikha, from a talk of the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak, in the early 40s, when he pleaded with American Jewry to realize that it was on a collision course with Yiddishkeit itself, and that their approach of luxury and decadence would invariably derail the future of Judaism. It was decades 
ahead of his time. Today you look at the Pew reports, you see exactly what the Friedrich Rebbe was talking about. The previous Rebbe said, and this is a quote, Once they have become fat, once they have begun to subtly change their habits, instead of perusing Torah literature on Shabbos, they prefer to read recreational literature. Instead of glancing over at someone else's newspaper or magazine at the park, they start coming home with the newspaper in hand. Instead of attending Afrum Shul, they start attending synagogues that cater to their more discriminating tastes, and eventually this behavior renders them thick, callous, and insensitive to authentic Jewish refinement, people becoming crude, ceaselessly seeking to satisfy their sensual desires. And after living like this for a while, said the Friedrich Rebbe, they come to scorn the rock of salvation. They begin to disdain authentic Torah Judaism altogether. Even the more quote-unquote sophisticated Jewish company they recently began to keep, the more fashionable synagogue they began frequenting, are not too Jewish for them. Anything smacking of Jewishness has become passe, tedious, embarrassing. They become covered with fat, altogether insensitive to true Jewish values. If they attend a synagogue, it must shed any trappings of traditionalism. It has to be pluralistic, politically correct, mor morally relativistic, the whole lot. Instead of following true Torah leaders, they select leaders who follow their own tastes who conform to the trends of the time. Their elevated social status blinds them to their own lack of sophistication in Torah, convincing them instead that they are wise enough to offer expert opinions, even in matters of Jewish practice, that they are not qualified to judge. Of course, there's nothing wrong with being wealthy. It's a, a marvelous gift, wealth. You can do incredible things with it. But entitlement and lack of effort and assuming that everything is available for free makes a person decadent. So it's good to have work ethic. It's good to be assiduous. It's good to continuously be reminded that the many, many wonderful things we have are gifts that we can't take for granted. Incidentally, the Rebbe spoke about this, and he said it doesn't mean we should give up hope. Even the most callous member of Am Yisrael remains a Yid. And we have to, so to speak, penetrate sometimes these thick barriers that have covered the true essence of one's Yiddishkeit. The Rebbe invoked a famous marshal. I think it's attributed to the Dubna Magid. That when somebody is on a ferry and they dig a hole or make a hole, bore a hole under their own seat, the whole ferry will sink. We have to be able to convincingly convey to people that the welfare of Am Yisrael is only as strong as each and every individual member of Am Yisrael. We have a job to do. It's not to scorn. It's not to ignore. It's not to disparage. But it's to understand and to be aware that if we wouldn't have to work or earn our daily bread, we would invariably end up in a bad place.
Here Rabbeinu B'chai now reaches across to the Mishnah. Mesechet Avot, in the second chapter, in the second Mishnah, it says that a person should always endeavor to study Torah with the pursuit of a, of a livelihood. So said Rabbi Gamliel, the son of Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi. And he said, because Yigiat Shnehem Mashkachat Avon, it is only the efforts made on both fronts that enable us to proverbially forget sinfulness. Now the truth is that there's many ways to understand this. And there is, for example, an approach or way of understanding this in which we, we simply say that if somebody doesn't work hard for a living and they don't have what it takes to provide to themselves, so you have Torah knowledge, but you also have a need. And so you resort to criminal activity or how do I provide for myself because, because I don't have derecheretz, I don't have the ability to create the vessel for Hashem's granting me of a livelihood. A livelihood. Whereas the Machzer Vitri, Rebbeinu Simcha Vitri, the disciple of Rashi says that if a person isn't going to be involved in the pursuit of a livelihood, eventually they'll be forced to take extraordinary steps to provide or find sustenance. And that will mean that they won't be able to study Torah. But had they, had they planned appropriately, they wouldn't be in trouble. <laughs> As one wise person once observed, we don't plan to fail, we fail to plan. Torah says, make a plan. Figure out how you're going to do this. Otherwise, you won't end up with Torah either. In the Alter Rebbe Shuchan Aruch, in chapter 156, he says, quote, A person, avur parnasase, to find sustenance to provide livelihood for yourself and your family. A person has to be involved in the procuring of a livelihood, making parnosa. If a person says, I'm not going to do that, I'm going to study Torah all day, I'm involved in holiness, let somebody else work for a living and provide for me. Then a person will have to struggle with poverty. And poverty is not a good place to be. It can easily spoil or ruin a person's taste for spirituality. Nowhere does Torah advocate poverty or suffering. But Torah does advocate making the efforts to earn an honest living. But Rabbeinu B'chaya sees something different in these verses. Clearly, he wants to emphasize how there is value in the work itself. He's not the only one of the Rishonim who explains the Mishnah in that fashion. For example, the great Rabbeinu Yonah wrote several centuries later in his commentary on the Mishnah, as long as a person isn't entitled, living, so to speak, the easy life, then he won't end up in a direction of seeking out sin. Because entitlement isn't a healthy place to be. Lachain, therefore, says Rebbeinu Yena, he should work hard. 
Work hard at his Torah study. Work hard at making a living. These are good things. It's good to have to work hard. It's good to have to toil. It's good to have to make the efforts and not to take things for granted. It's healthy. It's healthy for you as a human being. It's healthy for you from a spiritual perspective. Rabbi says the reality is that people sometimes have too much strength, wherewithal, or time in their hands. And the fact that they're busy, they value the time they have as Torah study, they value the time that they're doing, they're being, making a living, they're industrious. Keeps them away from sins. The Kol Shekein, Rabbi finishes with the words, any Torah that does not have work, hard work, strenuous efforts to make a living that come along with it. In the end, there is nothing left. And in the end, it causes sin. A person who is dissolute, a person who is empty in life, doesn't focus on spiritual pursuit or earthly pursuit, as is the case. Most often, with those who suffer from overabundance and entitlement. And as such, says Rabbeinu Bechaye, precisely because, if not for a person having to make the efforts, that he would almost certainly degenerate into pursuing a self-indulgent lifestyle, and he would almost always invariably end up chasing sin, so therefore, the fact that you're busy, that you're working on obtaining a livelihood, and you're studying Torah whenever you can, so that saves you from yet another pitfall. It was out of God's compassion to humanity. That he made us busy, because making us busy, trying to earn a living, and trying to live a life. You earn a living, material, in order to live a life, spirituality, holiness, sharing, caring, being sensitive to others, and thinking about Hashem all the time. So this is exactly what a person needs in order to succeed. So that he's busy, so to speak, all day long, saving him from indulging and in living a sinful lifestyle. And when a person is busy and he's occupied, he doesn't have any extra time, he stays away from things. That he's supposed to stay away from. Things which he cannot grasp, things which he can never know. Like this uh, developing these silly notions or futile theories about topics like, so what was before creation, what's after creation, pontificating things which the human mind can't understand anyway. And here he refers, of course, to Shlomo HaMelech, as King Solomon says in the third chapter of Kohelet, that he says there, Gam es ha'olam nasam belibam, 
Shlomo HaMelech said, he put, uh, so to speak, a preoccupation of the world or the world's affairs into people's hearts and minds. So that a person should not, so to speak, seek out to try to find what God has done from beginning to the end. In other words, we are not capable of knowing. So what happened before Bereshit Baralokim? And what happens when all this is over? Where does it go from there? As the Gemara tells us in Mesechet Chagiga, on page 11, that these kind of questions... Malafnim, malaacher, what's before, what's after. I say these are pointless philosophical debates. We, we, are, we are reaching for things we can't know, and it comes out of boredom, out of lack of being involved in an industrious kind of lifestyle. So Hashem kept us busy. We kept busy. We value the things we have. We try to utilize the time we're given. And this brings people happiness and a sense of fulfillment. It's not a secret that we're living at a time where people have more plenty than ever before in history. It's also not a secret that we're living in a time where there's more unhappiness, more depression, despondency, and sadness, certainly than ever since we started keeping records. Suicide is at an all-time high. Young people, depressed, medicated. People seeking narcotics because they can't deal with the stress, the challenges of life. My friends, something is wrong. A society that walks around half-dazed on marijuana because it can't find happiness otherwise is a sick society. Narcotics, like the rest of pharmacology, are to be used for people who are not well. But for normal, balanced people to need weed or alcohol to be happy is a profoundly messed up situation. There's a fascinating medrash. It talks to us about being industrious and the value of living that kind of life. It's a medrash that is found in Parshas Lech Lecha. In Parsha Lamates, Amr Rabbi Levi, Rabbi Levi said, Avram Mahalech, when Avram was going, Ba'aram Naharayim, Uba'aram Nochar, he's going through the areas, I suppose, where today would be Iraq or Syria, heading for the Holy Land, called Canaan at the time. He encountered people who were dissolute, people who were empty. He saw them eating, drinking, and entertaining themselves in a vacuous, empty way. Involved in frivolous things, humor, laughter, a life of uh, no meaning whatsoever. Omar, Avram said, I hope this isn't where God's sending me. I hope this is not the portion of land I'm supposed to be finding. When he reached the proverbial ladder of Tyre. Why is it called a ladder? So the Matnas Kahuna says, because it was on a mountain. And you had to, so to speak, go up steps or levels. Not literally, but, you know, in a manner of speech. 
So when he came, comes to this area, which is the entrance to the land of Canaan, the Holy Land, he saw the people involved in farming. He saw the people involved in all different ways of working the land. They were industrious. If only my portion will be in this land. The point is simple. The people in the land of Canaan needed to be uplifted, inspired by Avram Avinu's monotheism. But he had a base of what to work with because they were industrious. Because they knew the meaning of, of hard work. They knew the value of accomplishment and of achievement. And people who can work the soil, it's the kind of people Avram Avinu can speak to. This doesn't mean that hard work in and of itself is redeeming. But hard work that's done as Torah wants it to be done is indeed praiseworthy and extremely virtuous. In the words of the Friedrich Rebbe, in the Mimer, Adam la'amal nivra, a person is created to toil, to work hard. It's a Mimer that he delivered in the summer of 1929. The Friedrich Rebbe says that what he speaks of the perfect kind of situation is people who toil and work with a sense of faith and trust in Hashem. And that, he said, is extremely virtuous and appropriate. In other words, the hard work in and of itself may not be redeeming, but hard work done right is extremely liberating. We shouldn't fetch and complain that we have to work to make a living. We should value it and appreciate it. Because it can and should set us in the direction of seeking out Hashem's presence and fulfilling our life's mission and our destiny. And that, my dear friends, is why Hashem made us work for a living. Ah, I know what you're thinking. What about somebody who doesn't need those pressures? What about somebody who doesn't need those burdens, trials, or travails because, because they're there already? Because they have an attitude of profound gratitude because they are mindful of Hashem and take nothing for granted. Why do you make them work hard? That's an excellent question. We'll return to that, Bezrat Hashem, in our next episode. Thank you so much for joining. I really appreciate it. I hope you find these classes uplifting, informative, eye-opening, and inspirational. Your participation means the world to me. Please, if you don't mind, can you like, share, and let's try to build this channel so we can get a message of holiness, spirituality, a message of mission, a mission, a message of purpose that can engage all of humanity. Because if all of us will start to live lives that are focused on Hashem and filled with trust, we will bring blessing for ourselves, our families, and our communities. Our world will be a better and a happier place. And hopefully, that will accelerate the process and bring us to the final moment of Golos and the ushering in 
of the coming of Mashiach Bemheira Ubi Ameno speedily and in our days. Amen. Thank you again for joining. I appreciate it. If you haven't yet subscribed, youtube.com forward slash Rabbi Mendel Kaplan. Have a beautiful day.